don't know that I can tell you that much about it other than that Wavy Gravy was a, another very mythological character who had a whole group of people around him and did all sorts of amazing alternative comedy political stuff and had a whole group of people and uh, communal stuff and uh, was one of the figures from that time. I didn't know anything about any of that at that point in time, but this is who it was. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. It's easy to criticize the past. Ask any 20-something-year-old about their parents. Ask anyone who's frustrated with the world and how it works, and I include myself in that number. It's not difficult to peer into the past and find fault. Unfairness, injustice, corruption, and people with influence using it to their own advantage. It's possible to connect the dots of the past to the present through any lens you would like to use. Throw a postmodern filter on it, and you'll find yourself awash in relativism, identity, and power. The feminist filter? It will reveal in stark relief the biases of sex. Peer through the capitalist filter? It will show you entrepreneurial people who found a way to fill a need and make some money, while the Marxist view will reveal how owners took advantage of those without property or power. This series on the history of acupuncture and East Asian medicine's emergence into the mainstream culture of the West has its own various perspectives as well. What I'm looking to do here is bring you the stories and perspectives of people who were there in the beginning. I want to give you a glimpse of what they saw, along with the challenges, troubles, and opportunities of that time. Living in between heaven and earth as we do, the call to being human is to work out what our life is. I suspect we all look to find a way through our days that creates a sense of meaning and purpose as we find a way to earn our daily bread that feeds us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Satisfying and productive work, it is as essential as nourishing food, clean water, and deep restorative sleep. I was fortunate when I went to acupuncture school in the mid-90s, the infrastructure for a profession already had a firm footing. There were accredited schools, national exams, and licensure in the state that I happened to live in. Acupuncture was weird, but the culture of the Pacific Northwest was open to the eccentric, and Perhaps the natural connection with the Pacific Rim made it a bit easier for the blending of East and West cultures. So acupuncture, while at the time was a bit exotic, it was still part of the mix. In this conversation with Malvin Finkelstein, we reflect on the challenges and tremendous opportunities of the late 70s and early 80s as our profession was finding its footing. We'll get into that in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. 
And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code CHEOLOGICAL at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, 
visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Welcome everyone to today's Shop Talk, where I'll be diving into a lesser known treatment that we love to use in our clinic every day. I am talking about the topic of releasing aggressive energy, which we now call chaotic energy. Many practitioners who come to train at our learning center have heard of aggressive energy before, but maybe they haven't used it in their practice until they see it in action and the healing power that releasing chaotic energy gives so many of our patients. I'm Lita Herman, the co-founder of the Alchemy Learning Center. The Alchemy Learning Center is an amazing community of acupuncturists, healers, and self-cultivators exploring Taoist alchemy and classical Chinese medicine as a means to unlocking our true potential and helping others do the same. Chaotic energy stems from external factors like stressful situations in life and media overload that ends up weakening our Wei Qi systems, thereby allowing the intrusion of what I like to call not true Qi or Shui Qi. I always say chaotic energy is one of the more difficult Chinese medicine concepts to understand, especially to explain to our clients. But the good news is, we don't technically need an in-depth understanding of it to work with it. We simply need to recognize that this simple treatment is incredibly effective at helping patients alleviate annoying, often mysterious symptoms, and promoting overall well-being. The CE treatment traditionally utilizes the backshoe points for the yin organs, and while needles are commonly used, we teach a more efficient non-needle acupressure technique at the Alchemy Learning Center. This approach involves drawing out the chaotic energy from each backshoe pair, which can be detected through your hands and then felt immediately through pulse changes. When I learned the CE treatment over 20 years ago, most five-element practitioners at the time believed that only maybe 30% or less of their patients presented with CE. However, I've noticed a huge increase in CE over the past 15 years as cell phones and smartphones and iPads, laptops, and so many more devices have become a constant in our daily lives. Now I find that most of my new clients, I'd say like 90%, come in with chaotic energy. And that makes sense. Our lives are so much more chaotic nowadays with the constant bombardment of media on the mental level and the EMF surrounding us energetically at all times wherever we go. The other thing about chaotic energy that we need to know is that it often gets into one organ system and then begins to spread through the co-cycle. And I think this is why it was originally named aggressive energy, because the idea behind it is that it will continue to spread throughout the Wei Qi system and eventually affect all the organ systems and contribute to more severe illness over time. The most common symptoms of CE you're going to see are vexation and agitation symptoms, anything from emotional agitation, anxiety, nervousness, paranoia, and irritability, plus physical symptoms often related to the Wei Qi itself and can include anything from palpitations, 
to minor rashes, to bowel discomfort. All these are areas that relate to the circulation of Wei Qi in the body. And you'll also feel that the pulses can actually feel chaotic or even a bit buzzy. As CE begins to affect more systems in the body over time, CE can eventually cause many more major health concerns. If chaotic energy is only affecting one system, the patient may recover even after one treatment. But in more serious cases where CE becomes an ongoing pattern, frequent, repeated treatments may be necessary, but also be quite astounding in their ability to turn around persistent and entrenched forms of illness such as cancer. While these seemingly miraculous turnarounds seem like reason enough to embrace the idea of treating chaotic energy regularly, the real reason I'm so enthusiastic about teaching chaotic energy treatments to our alchemical students is because when you're working on something as profound as alchemy, such as with the 13 ghost points treatments we teach and work with, these release deep old traumas, for example, and, and it just becomes essential to address any chaotic energy that might be present as well. Because without clearing this energy, patients might be confused when they still feel unwell after doing such deep work. So often it's just the presence of the chaotic energy that makes them feel out of sorts and not themselves. And this would be true with any kind of work you're doing, not just alchemy, but any kind of deep transformative work that you do. So let's just look quickly at three cases to give you an idea of why you might want to use CE treatments before we get into some more details about doing it. A simple example is one man who came to me many years ago who had to fly every day for his job. But one day he went to the airport and he just couldn't board the flight. He thought it was a panic attack and it just went on for several weeks. Then he came to me and all I did was literally one chaotic energy treatment. The next day he was able to fly again and he hasn't had a panic attack since. These types of stories are really common, but even more astounding are some of the examples of treating CE with patients who have more advanced illness. In fact, one of the reasons I've always taken chaotic energy so seriously in my practice is that in my very first year of practice, I was asked to treat a woman on her deathbed in a facility. All I did that day was a CE treatment, and she was expected to die any day. Well, she's still alive today over 20 years later, and all I can think is that CE had something to do with it. Another astounding example is a woman with bladder cancer who had to have an operation every month or so to remove her bladder tumors. She had a ton of CE on the kidneys, and all I did with her was several months of CE treatments and some general heat releasing. She eventually stopped coming because she was completely better. Okay, so let's dive into some of the nuances of the CE treatment itself. The order of the back shoe points is important. We begin with the lungs and follow the co-cycle through the points. So that would be lungs, liver, spleen, kidney, pericardium, and then heart. The needling method is very specific. You tap the needles in to ensure that you're only accessing the Wei Qi level. You don't want to drain the Ying Qi of the back shoe points. And your intention is to think of it like you're tapping a tree for maple syrup. You're just inserting a spigot to allow the Shui Qi to release. You must be beneath the skin and the subcutaneous regions, but not to the depth of the Ying Qi. You're just 
draining the heat out of the Wei Qi level. And if you're using needles, have your client sit in a chair and lean on the table because on a rare occasion, clients are known to faint from a CE drain with needles. You might be wondering why I consider this treatment fast despite having numerous points. Yes, they're all bilateral. The answer is that I teach my students a non-needle technique as an alternative to the needle-based treatment. Needle-based treatments require leaving the needles in for an extended period, sometimes the entire hour, until any erythemas around the needles disappear. Instead, the non-needle energetic approach is both quicker and equally effective. Through a gentle energetic acupressure method, you place your fingers on each of the points and draw out the chaotic energy from the back shoe pairs. When employing the non-needle technique and using your fingers as substitutes for the needles, you're going to simulate specific needle actions that you'd normally do with a needle. For example, if you typically use a lifting and thrusting action, you apply the same action in the non-needle approach. Similarly, circular techniques used for tonification or dispersion are replicated with your fingers. In cases where the objective is to release the chaotic energy, no needle action is typically used, so you simply place your fingers on the points to open that spigot and draw out that misplaced shui qi that doesn't belong there. If this sounds difficult to you, you can draw upon your powers of imagination and visualization. There are numerous ways to use your imagination to help you do this. I often say this depends on your special gifts. Are you more clairvoyant, clairaudient, or clairsentient? In other words, can you see, hear, or feel into the unknown? For instance, if you tend to be more clairvoyant, you can close your eyes and imagine that you're flying in a plane over the land of the lungs on the first point. By mentally observing the scenery below, you can identify whether it's a clear day below or the terrain is blanketed by dark storm clouds. You then allow your energy to clear away the storm clouds. When the land is clear, you move on to the next set of points. Intriguingly, this non-needle technique allows you to immediately sense the presence of chaotic energy if you are a sensory-oriented person like myself or what I like to call clairsentient. As you practice, you'll gain valuable insights into the nature of this energy, such as its tendency to cause hiccups in the flow of qi in the channels, known as channel blocks, which is also a concept from the five-element Chinese medicine tradition that's not widely used in TCM. So by removing chaotic energy and its associated channel blocks, you'll notice an instant change in the pulse, often positively affecting weaker pulses in need of balance. So again, to summarize, you use the specific order, starting with lungs, then liver, spleen, then kidney, pericardium, and then heart. And if you're using acupressure, you cycle through all the points at least twice to be sure you're getting it all. If you're using needles, you just tap them in so they hang down a little bit. And in all cases, you're making sure that you're only doing a CE drain and not the deeper ying chi level. Whether you're using needles or not, you may see the erythemas around the points, and that definitely means there is CE present. I hope you've enjoyed this shop talk about how you can add chaotic energy clearing treatments to your practice and to your life. When Michael asked me what I wanted to talk about on shop talk, my first answer was 
everyone should know about the CE treatment. It is one of the most powerful techniques I've used in our clinic on a daily basis, and all of our acupuncturists at the clinic use it daily as well. If you want to explore this technique further, we offer an online class in our learning center, and we've planned a more comprehensive live stream scheduled this fall. The classes also focus on teaching practitioners and patients how to do CE treatments on themselves using a number of other self-care techniques. We also have many NCCAOM-approved continuing education classes in classical Chinese medicine and alchemical Chinese medicine. So if you want to learn more about chaotic energy or shui qi and especially alchemical approaches to working with shui qi, possessions, and other weird and wacky aspects of Chinese medicine, check out the Alchemy Learning Center at alchemylearningcenter.com. And we have a podcast called Inspired Action Podcast, which is dedicated to discussions on alchemy, the five elements, and the nine palaces. Thanks for spending time with me today to think about chaotic energy and how you can release it for your patients. Marvin Finkelstein, welcome here back to Geological and in particular to uh, this history series on how acupuncture found its way into mainstream culture. You were there when that happened. You were part of that. I was in the fairly early part. There was a slightly earlier part than me that I consider slightly different, but I've merged into that earlier part just because we're so far away from all of that. But yes, I was there. Pretty amazing. What year was it when acupuncture, Chinese medicine, first came to your attention? What was the year? Can you remember? Well, I first got involved in acupressure in 1976. 1976. I'm curious to know two things. What got your attention? Like, oh, that's interesting. And the other thing is 1976. What was going on in 1976? What was going on in your life? What was going on in the larger mainstream culture that had you somehow open to the idea of, huh, acupressure? Well, it does get into one of my, what I call origination stories of how I got to be where I am now. So it was 1976. I had fairly recently met my first wife. We were living in Berkeley, California. And we both went back to the East Coast to visit our respective families on the East Coast. Had a both wonderful and at the same time very stressful trip. When I came back, I noticed that I had a little bit of lower back pain. At that point in my life, I knew almost nothing about anything alternative or holistic. I'd taken a yoga class in college is about all that I knew. But I had seen an ad for a class in acupressure up on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, uh, and somehow it struck my attention. Exactly how or why it struck my attention, it's a good question. I'm not really sure, but somehow it struck my attention enough that it said that looked like something that was interesting. And when I had the back pain, my mind, my being somehow connected well, why don't I check out this acupressure stuff for this back thing I've got? So I then had to find my way back up to Telegraph to find the poster that this was on, which you know, took a day or so. And each day, my back started getting tighter and tighter. I did a little bit of yoga and stretching. It didn't really have a lot of effect. By about the third day, I got it, and I called the number, and I got an answering service. That was back when there were, weren't too many answering machines. It was answering services. And even then, an answering service was kind of a new thing. 1976? 
you know, it, it was kind of new. Uh, and at this point, this was about the fourth day. And at this point, I could barely bend from my lower back. I mean, I was getting pretty uncomfortable. Interestingly enough, it, it didn't occur to me until years later that never once in this entire episode did I consider seeing a medical doctor. It just never entered my consciousness. You know, I was just on this one particular track. So I'm on the phone and they tell me, oh, he's out of town. At this point, I don't feel very good. So I just say to the person who's on the answering service, do you know anybody who does acupressure or acupuncture? And he said, well, let me put you on with someone who's just visiting us right at this moment in time. And so this person who, quote unquote, just happened to be visiting there at that point in time, gets on the phone and turns out he was uh, what turns out to have been a, one of the mythological characters from that time. His name was Michael from the hog farm, from Wavy Gravy's hog farm, for those who know that particular time period. Michael from Wavy Gravy's hog farm. Yes, it sounds a little weird if you don't know anything about that. I know a little bit about it. Tell us about it. Wavy Gravy's hog farm. I don't know that I can tell you that much about it other than that Wavy Gravy was a, another very mythological character um, who had a whole group of people around him and did all sorts of amazing alternative comedy political stuff and had a whole group of people and uh, communal stuff and uh, was one of the figures from that time. I didn't know anything about any of that at that point in time, but this is who it was. And so he got on the phone and he said, well, I have this friend, why don't you give her a call? And he gave me this person's name and number. So I call her right up and this is like Thursday, I think, of a given week. And she says, well, I'm going out of town on Saturday, but since this guy, Michael from the hog farm, just told you to call me and since this just happened to you and it's acute, why don't you come in tomorrow? Um, and she gives me an address. And so next day I wake up, I'm barely moving. One of my friends drives me up to her place it's a house in the Berkeley Hills. So keep in mind, this is before acupuncture is legal in California. This is when nobody knows what the heck any of this stuff is really about. And this person's an acupuncturist, by the way. I guess I forgot to mention that. So she, you know, they refer me to an acupuncturist in the pre-legal time, in the gray area time before acupuncture was actually legal there. And which is why she was practicing out of her house. So I get into, I walk in the door and this is my, my memory of, this, of the event. I see people strewn all over the house with needles in them, you know, different rooms, different parts of the room. And a good part of my instinct, having no experience with any of this stuff, is to like say, this is just way too weird. I'm going to like get out of here. But I'm in a lot of pain. Uh, and I think my friends already left. So I don't actually have a way out of there anyway. So uh, I go in there and I meet this woman, Yvonne Karanoff. I remember her name. And she gives me one of the most insightful intakes that I've ever experienced. She asked me whether I played a contact sport where I, I slammed my back against the wall. I assume she must have been psychic and picked that up. I'm not sure what particular modality that would have come from other than that, but she was actually correct. I played handball and did exactly that same thing. So uh, she gave me an acupuncture treatment, a whole bunch of needles, electricity in, in the points. Uh, by the time I got off the table, I was 90% better. So uh, obviously, this worked. That got your attention. It got my attention big time. She didn't tell me much of anything more. She didn't make another appointment for me. She gave me a little bit of dietary advice and sent me on my way. And uh, I, I was feeling mostly better. Uh, I then made contact with the acupressure guy, uh, went to one of his classes with my, my first wife, 
and they were into macrobiotics, and we went and got our, I'm telling you a bunch of this story here. Well, I guess we're, this is okay. Well, you know, I mean, look, we all have a creation story for how we got to wherever we are, and our profession has a creation story. It's a really multifaceted creation story, which is why we're doing this series, you know? So should I go on to one more little piece of this? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I've got another question about this Yvonne character. Okay. So we go to the acupressure class. Oh, this actually ties into your original question. So I'm, I'm finally getting back to your question here. Uh, we go to the acupressure class and it's really interesting and fascinating. And they're into macrobiotics. We go to the Berkeley Co-op and get our, our first batch of healthy food, eat our healthy food. And we're in the, the Berkeley area. We then go to Ghirardelli Square, which is a, a, a big marketplace with lots of shops and have our favorite coffee chocolate drink. And my back pain comes back instantly. Oh, no. <laughs> in my really not particularly understanding much of anything about any of this, the thought comes to me, I need to have something natural to antidote this. And I wander around Ghirardelli Square and the only thing I can find is orange juice. And I drink some orange juice and I actually start feeling better. And over the next period of time on that particular thread of it, my body started telling me anytime I ate anything bad for me, my back would hurt. And I went from pretty standard American diet to extremely strict macrobiotics within a few weeks. Um, because anytime I ate anything other than beans and grains and rice and vegetables, my back would hurt. You know, good, good feedback mechanism taught me a whole lot. So while I was doing that, I was going through the acupressure training program and I loved it. It just explained all sorts of things about the universe and reality and how things connected together. And I was working on people and they liked it and I felt good and I was finding things and learning stuff and I loved it. Uh, and that was what, what got me. And, uh, you know, that was uh, more than 45 years ago. Uh, and, and I've just been cooking on that, that thread ever since. So you never thought to see a medical doctor there? Like, it didn't even come to your mind. Did not even come to my mind. Didn't even think about it until someone asked me that question a couple of years later. Were you not particularly into Western medicine or it, it, did you not think Western medicine would help or, or, or it just didn't come to mind? It was, it was just a complete blank. I was pretty mainstream coming into that. So I had no aversity to Western medicine, but I also never particularly went to see doctors. You know, you know, I was a healthy young man and uh, more or less. Yeah, you don't need to. Uh, and you don't need to. And it just somehow just never never popped in. Never popped into your mind. So this Yvonne character, what's her last name? Karanoff. Karanoff. Yvonne Karanoff. Where did she learn it? This is way early. How did she learn acupuncture? The people before me learned outside of the U.S. mostly. They either learned in China or they lived learned in England. You know, of, you know, usually probably from the Worsley School, which was going early on in there. You know, and some people went to, to China, to various parts of China. And uh, that was where the cadre before me actually learned it. And those are the people who brought the, the, the teachers to the U.S. who started the schools in the U.S. Um, you know, it was that group of people who, who, found, who studied with people, found, found some of those people who were willing to actually come to the U.S. Uh, and, and start teaching here. So you were the benefactor of the very early work of, of people who had gone over and was just first starting to bring people on over. Yeah, yes. I mean, and really at that point in time, you know, no, none of the teachers had really come over quite yet. 
but there were various of the people who had studied there who were who were practicing in various parts of the world and various parts of the country. Yeah. yeah. So at some point, you decide to follow this path. You, you decide you're going to learn acupuncture. Yeah. What happened is I went through the acupressure training program, apprenticed with, with the, the teacher, give credit to the people. This was originally Michael Gock from the acupressure workshop in Berkeley. And he was young and just learning from his teachers uh, who were Iona Teagarden and Ron Teagarden. And, uh, you know, Ron Teagarden, who is currently the principal of Dragon Herbs, Iona Teagarden went on and has been teaching acupressure classes for years, as has Michael. So I, I studied with those guys, did a whole training program with them, loved it, and wanted to do more and wanted to study acupuncture. And at that point in time, the only acupuncture school that appeared anywhere was the school in Boston. Turns out there was a preschool happening in San Francisco at the time that I didn't know about and didn't really know about until many years later, but that I just somehow never found out about. I could have gone much closer to home than I did, but I moved back to Boston to go to the New England School of Acupuncture in its second year of operation. So you were there in the very, very early days? Yeah, very, very early days. Second year of operation. Okay. Malvin, how old are you at this point? I'm 71. Yeah. So, I mean, how old were you back at the point we decided you're going to NISA? in the second class? Uh, Mid-20s. Mid-20s. All right. Nice Jewish boy from the East Coast. And you're doing what with your life? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Malvin, there's not even a profession yet. That school was probably not accredited. There certainly was no licensure. Yep, that's right. And here you are. You've moved back to the East Coast. You're taking a big gamble. You're throwing in on, you're throwing in on a profession that's not even a profession. I'm throwing in on a profession that most people think is voodoo, actually. I mean, when people mentioned acupuncture back in those days and, and they thought of needles or anything like that, that was the response. I mean, not that voodoo is a bad thing, but that was how people equated it. They had no knowledge of what the heck any of that stuff was. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. And, and there's no infrastructure. I mean, look, you're going you're gonna to go learn whatever you're going to learn, and then you're going to come out and do what without a license? What? inspired you? What was it at that moment where you're thinking, there's nothing really here right now, but you threw in anyway? What were you, what was going through your mind? What were you seeing? What was your glimpse? What was your, your, your glimmer at that moment? Well, the interesting thing about, I think the group of people who studied in those early days is we had a completely different mindset than any of the people after us. The concepts of profession, the concepts of all of those things that you mentioned weren't in our, our, our framework. We just had found something that was wonderful and magical and worked, and we loved it. And we were just following that particular path, wherever it might lead. Uh, and, you know, which is how our profession really got started by that level of pioneer who just didn't care about any of the other stuff, didn't even think about any of this stuff. We're the ones who you know, in a few years after that, started establishing all of the structure that we now have that let us get to where we are, you know, despite the fact that lots of people don't like any of that structure. It's really what got us there. It, it's such a funny thing. I, I was lucky to come along in the mid-90s when I started my training, and everything was in place. The structures were in place. Licensure was in place. The whole thing was there. All I had to do was throw it on a school and say, yeah, I can have a new profession. And there was clearly a profession 
to be had if I wanted it. But here you are in the beginning and those early pioneers, and man, I'm using pioneer like in its original, we're out on the frontier and we could die, <laughs> right? We don't know what's around the corner. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it became a profession around us just completely amazed us. You know, we had no idea it was going to turn into that. And you had a hand in some of that, didn't you? Yeah, I actually had a hand in a fair amount of that. Are we talking about those things now? You know, I, I want to hear about what you did, for sure. But I'm also curious to know, before we get into your story in particular, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining... <laughs> I'm imagining creation, like, you know, the Big Bang, you know, kaboom. And then at a certain point, dust clouds begin to form together. And then, you know, galaxies kind of form together. You know, things coalesce after a kaboom experience. And I'm wondering what you noticed as you were going through school and maybe just out of school. What was coalescing that allowed for a profession to come forth? Coalescing in the, the culture or in me, which are you asking? Yeah, it's a big question. What was coalescing in the culture? For sure, I'm curious about that. And what was coalescing within this sort of nascent profession? It's not a profession yet. It's not even a proto-profession. It's a bunch of pioneers seeing what's down the road. Well, I mean... For us at that point in time, for those of us who actually managed to finish those classes, and there were a lot of people who didn't finish the class and dropped out midstream, we were just trying to figure out what's next. What do we do? I mean, how do we actually start treating patients, you know, making money, doing any of these things, and where are we going to do it? Uh, and uh, different people scattered to different places. I was one of the scatterers that ended up going from Boston to Oregon. And, uh, you know, other people scattered to various places. Some people stayed in the Boston area. Um, we, were, we were just trying to figure out what the next step, you know, wh where do we put our next foot in front of the, the first foot, uh, you know, is, is, is where we were as individuals at that point in time, which is really before anybody was thinking of structuring the organization. That took a few more years after that before those structural things happened. That was about somewhere around 83, 84, 85, um, somewhere in there where people got together and started meeting together and started thinking about how to actually make the structures happen. So before those structures began, you're out in Oregon. What are you doing? How are you making it work? Well, I was fortunate in that when I got to Oregon, which, uh, you know, just to, to, to give a concept to the pioneers, you, you know, you said licensure was in place. Licensure happened very gradually state by state in those early years. 1973, Oregon and Nevada were the first two states to have licensure way before California. Yeah. Oregon in 73. 73. Uh, Nevada was actually the first by a couple of months and then Oregon and then other states gradually followed. California had, uh, had political challenges, which is why the New England school didn't go to California, but went to Boston. Um, there were, I'm not remembering or were particularly privy to that particular part of it. Some of my other earlier colleagues were pieces of that and, you know, can or, you know, could talk about that. Um, but uh, I was fortunate enough that when I did get to Oregon, one of those early people who, the New England School, backtracking one step, the New England School was founded by bringing Dr. James Tinyao So from Hong Kong to the U.S. 
And uh, there was a group of about half dozen, six or seven people who were part of it at different stages of it. Uh, and they were trying to figure out where to actually set up their first school. And they checked out various places. California didn't quite work at that point in time. And they ended up in Massachusetts, which is really surprising since it had such a strong uh, allopathic Western medical community, but it was where the best place was to do that. Uh, and so they set up that school, which is what I went to. But some of that original group scattered right away. And one of them went to Oregon. Uh, and that was Gene Bruno, uh, who was in Portland. Uh, and so the licensure at that point in time, while Oregon had licensure, you couldn't actually get a license until you had a certain amount of experience. But you couldn't get that experience in Oregon. You had to go out of Oregon to get the experience. Yeah, there were all these interesting, I mean, you know, these are the hoops that, that we had to go through. Uh, and so the people just prior to me actually had to do that. They had to go somewhere else, get their experience, and then come back and take the, the state licensure because there was no national licensure at that point in time. That was part of the structure that happened a little later. The states had their own licensure and testing structures. Um, so when I got there, I was actually in the first group of a couple of people that the acupuncture committee, part of the board of medical examiners, looked at that. Someone brought it up. Maybe it was me. Maybe it was somebody else. And they actually modified that rule. And they said, well, you can actually intern with someone in state. Uh, and so I was one of the first people who interned uh, in state uh, with, uh, with Gene Boone up in Portland. Uh, and I did six months of internship. Uh, which is what let me sit for, uh, for the acupuncture license in in uh, in Oregon and then get a license. And then I was also fortunate that there were some predecessors of mine in Eugene, uh, one of whom I worked with, and then he moved away and I bought his practice, uh, which helped me set myself up a little bit. Wow. What's your Oregon license number? 44. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which at this point is really one of the earliest people who are still intact. I'm still in practice, although I'm semi-retired just as of about a month ago. I'm still working though, but, uh, you know, they're wow. Yeah. 44. And even, even that early in your, your number 44. So Oregon was a real kind of hotbed of Chinese medicine in a way. We were, and most of those early practitioners were Asian, most of them Chinese, uh, you know, a few, a few Caucasians. Now, was this something that the Chinese got set up for themselves as a, as a way of being able to practice their craft? Or was this brought about by Caucasians? How, do you have a sense of how those early licensure laws in Oregon came to be? Well, I'll generalize first. Most of the licensure laws in most places happened because people who were having some problem found their way into the, the Asian communities, usually Chinese, but not always. It got better, and some of these people were influential, and so they went to the uh, to the you know the, their state senate and Congress, uh, and moved the laws for, through. And uh, you know the practitioners had no power to do any of that. Uh, it, it was the uh, it was the patients who had gotten better, who had had amazing results. Because in those days, who would go to something like that? You've tried the only people who would were the people who tried absolutely everything else, and it didn't work. And they said, "What the heck? I'm going to try this stuff," and it worked. And they were amazed. They told their friends, and you know, and and that's really how acupuncture in the U.S. got started, uh, is uh, is just because it worked for people who nothing else worked for. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. 
A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Well, and this is interesting, Malvin. People of influence who then help the profession grow because it sounds like they're they're grateful and they want to help take care of and make sure that the person who helped them is able to continue helping people. Yeah, and, and that other people can get helped also. Yeah. Right. That, that was where it came from. And in most, most of the states, that's what happened. That is so interesting. There was a groundswell from patients as well that helped to bring all this about. Yeah. I mean, that, that was how the, the early licensure laws happened. I did not, I did not know that it, and as I think back to the very early, when I was first starting my, uh, my acupuncture education, insurance was just coming into the state of Washington. And I remember it was being spearheaded by, uh, uh Deborah Sen, I think was her name insurance commissioner, state of Washington. And she was very keen on acupuncture because acupuncture was, had been very beneficial to her. And so I, re I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, that's really wild that someone would have an experience be in a position like hers. And then here she is trying to get insurance payments through in the state of Washington. So that, that really fits with what you're talking about here. There was this, uh, so organic in a way, isn't it? It is. It grew because it was helping. Uh, it was helping people, and people felt it, and people responded in in positive manners. Very organic. They didn't need any evidence based medicine. They had their evidence. Yep, their evidence was their own experience. Right. Right. So you take an exam in the state of Oregon. Now, at some point. That exam goes national with the NCCAOM. How did that come about? Well, we get back to the to the structure that happened in somewhere in 83, 84, 85. I don't quite remember the first meeting. I was not actually at the first meeting where a group of people got together and set up the four structural commissions that are the the foundation of uh, the acupuncture world in, in the U.S., all of whose names have changed over the years slightly to have oriental medicine in them and then to not have oriental medicine in them. But uh, what happened is uh, a national certification commission was was set up to examine uh, and test uh, individuals. Uh, an accreditation commission was set up to accredit schools. A 
another commission was set up to oversee the uh, the various schools, uh, and a professional association was set up originally, the AAAOM, or AAAOM in the very early days probably, uh, was set up as a professional organization. And all of those were, were interlinked in various different ways. Uh, and I got enlisted into the uh, the what was the NCCA at that point in time back in 1989. I mean, if we're going to backtrack a little bit more, uh, I got enlisted into being on the acupuncture committee for the Oregon, uh, the Oregon Medical Board uh, some years earlier, presumably by my colleague, Jean Bruno, who uh, was bringing other people in uh, at various times. So I served, uh, I actually served on the, uh, the acupuncture committee of the Oregon Medical Board for about somewhere between 16 and 20 years. This is before they had term limits. They term limited me out eventually. Uh, and then some years later, uh, they asked me back on and I was on for another six years. And what did that board do? That was, strictly speaking, a committee of the medical board. Different states had different structural things. Some, some states actually had acupuncture boards. Some states were part of other boards. Uh, in Oregon, we were part of the medical board for various structural things that are, you know, not not all that exciting to talk about here. But what was your job? What was the purpose of the board? Basically, the the, the purpose of this of the acupuncture committee is we advised the board, uh, and as long as we were within certain parameters, the board would tend to agree with us. At this point in time, the uh, the local acupuncture association is working to try to get actually a committee member actually on the board itself, as opposed to on the committee. 40-year process to move through that. But what that committee did was they advised on a range of different things in terms of uh, what type of educational requirements were were appropriate, approved licensure, you know, dealt with uh, people who are doing things wrong, you know, and, 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 and working with that uh, and various other pieces like that. And, and so that was my, my stepping board. When I went to one of the larger meetings, uh, I was asked to be part of the NCCA which I then somewhat reluctantly agreed to do. Mm-hmm. Now, the NCCA, I think, is an interesting, especially at this point in time, interesting um, organization, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Because, you know, they do the test. We all have to, have, we all have to pass this test to be able to get licensure in our states, most states, uh, licensure is contingent upon passing of the NCCOM exam. So they, they administer that exam, which is great because, well, we get to have a profession this way, you know? It, it's fantastic. And I, I think I'm probably not too far off the mark to say that lots of people have really bad opinions about that organization. Yeah. Well, well let me just, since we're we're on that particular thing, uh, and you were asking this question, it ties back into some of the other stuff of like how we got here. Yes. And so that's, that's exactly it, Malvin. Uh, what I'm most, I mean, today is today and I'm not even sure I want to talk so much about today because this is more about the history. Again, back in that moment when you were first getting on that board, back when that was first part of those four commissions that were being formed, that became pillars that created you know, the structure that we have of a profession. The NCCA at that point, it was solving a big problem. What was the problem that it was solving for? Well, that's, that's exactly it. So what started happening is 
we had part one of like someone in some state has helped by acupuncture and they go to the legislature and they want to get acupuncture in. Now, two things were, well, I'll get to that part and then I'll backtrack to the other part maybe, or maybe not. The way that professions are licensed is there are particular procedures that go in place and structures and testing agencies and things that let the legislature know that everything's being done the way it should be. And so uh, essentially what that means is that there's testing organizations that do things in particular psychometric ways so that they're fair, valid, and reliable, all these particular code words. And the fact that the NCCA at that point, later the NCCOM, had that is a huge part of how those, those legislatures actually felt comfortable licensing acupuncture in many of those states in the whole middle to later stage of, of all the licensure. Um, they said, okay, you guys are doing what we expect you to be doing. Okay, that's fine. Uh, you know, you, you, and they came up with their various different regulations, all of which are slightly different, which became somewhat problematic, but not hugely, and got acupuncture licensed in most of the states uh, because it had that particular structure of testing. And what had happened slightly earlier than that is before everybody accepted the, the NCCA, there were a bunch of states who had already gotten their own licensure before the NCCA was established. And they were giving their own tests, but they were individuals writing exams who didn't know about all of this particular structure about how to write fair, reliable, valid exams. And they got sued constantly. Uh, and the state said, we're not particularly happy with getting sued. Uh, and so almost all the states, with the exception of California mostly, uh, ended up adopting the NCCA as their doorway into licensure. States got sued over the tests. Yep. Yeah, people would come in and say, we took this test and I should have passed and you had, you did a bad test and they sued on it. Uh, and apparently, I mean, I don't remember any of the details of any of them. I just know that this was happening in many places uh, and the states didn't like it. They either lost or they didn't lose. I'm not quite sure what, what happened, but it's a, it's a hassle in any case. Uh, it's a financial hassle. I should have passed the test. I didn't pass the test. So the test is wrong. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, you know, they, they just weren't really well done tests. Uh, they were written by individuals who knew had some academic training, maybe, maybe not, um, and came up with coming up with questions that you know were maybe good, maybe weren't good, but hadn't been vetted the way that testing agencies vet questions. Right. So the governments are looking for a reliable standard for practitioners. They want to know that practitioners are meeting a certain standard. And so we need tests that can accurately validate, have you met a certain standard? If you've got a test in an agency that administers a test that's valid and reliable, that says this person has reached a certain minimal standard, then the state governments go, great, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a certain standard. And if we get that, here's your license. That's the way the structure of licensure in the U.S. works. Yeah. Whether or not that's the ultimate best way of doing it is another question, but that's that's the system we're in. I was going to say that's another question because on, on one hand, standards are really helpful. Like if I go to the gas station, I want to make sure I'm getting the same gallon from every different pump. You know, if I go to the grocery store and it says whole wheat flour on it, I want to make sure it's whole wheat flour. So, yeah, standards are important. And then at the same time, you know, our medicine is so quirky in some ways, that it's almost antithetical to standards. 
But one of the things that was interesting that I got from my, the person I took over, well, you know, slight backtrack. When I got onto the NCCA, within six months of it, I was pushed into being the chair of the exam committee, which I did not feel at all capable of doing. But the person who was my predecessor and mentor, Stuart Cutchins, saw that I was the person that was the right person to do it, even though I was just newly on, on the commission. I had something that he saw was going to do it. Well, knowing Stuart Cutchins, I would trust what he had to say. Well, no, I mean, he, he was right. <laughs> you know, when I look back at who I was and who else was there, and everybody agreed, you know, other people had lots of other skills and training and academic qualifications, but my, you know, nascent organizational abilities were, uh, were, were very useful. Uh, they came out through that whole process. And, uh, boy, I lost my thread on that one there. Having organizational capacity, being able to organize things, and especially organize groups, that's, I mean, I suspect you can be taught how to do that, but I think a lot of people, are, you're either born with it or you're, or you're not. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think both things are true. You know, one can certainly learn a lot of those things, but as with any trade or skill, some things are easier for people and more, more natural. And uh, I discovered that I had an interesting ability to take not structural things apart, but like, like conceptual things apart and put them back together in better ways. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was a skill that I, I really learned through this, you know, a lot of it with the NCCA uh, as, as I was, you know, handed various pieces of, of running a practical exam and uh, a a written exam that was being administered in three and then four different languages, Ma massive undertaking. And it was all in person for you know, a number of years before it, it went on electronic manners. Now, would you say you've always had this kind of capacity to take ideas and concepts and kind of take them apart and tinker with them and put them back? Or, or is this something that you acquired through learning Chinese medicine? Hmm. Well, it's something that I became aware of as I got thrown into be these particular situations. And did Chinese medicine have something to do with it? It's not something I've thought about before. I suspect that it's actually more genetic since there are other people in my family with similar skill levels. That people that I'm aware of, my aunt has the same skill level, my daughter has the same skill level, uh, and that there's some hard to explain what, some genetic tendency for that particular thing. Chinese medicine probably helped bring it out in certain ways, but. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's always interesting how we take who we are, apply it to what we're doing, and, and then discover more about who we actually are. And capacities, maybe we didn't know we had it until thrown into the middle of the, middle of the cyclone, so to speak. And then, uh, Find out what you're made of. That's right. So you were on the NCCA, well, at that time it was the NCCA. When did they decide to add Oriental Medicine, which at this point I think they're trying to take away? Yeah, that's it's the give and take of that. I can't remember the exact year of when, when those things shifted around. Do you remember why they added Oriental Medicine to it? Well, actually it's because in the very early parts of things, we did just acupuncture. And then Chinese herbs, Oriental Medicine you know, whatever word, wording you want to use for that Chinese herbology became more and more popular and it became more than just acupuncture. And of course, there's all the rest of 
Asian medicine, Oriental medicine, Chinese medicine, whichever word you want to use, it, it gets incorporated also. So the terminology wanted to get added in uh, and, you know, so it, it was a broadening of an acknowledgement of what we were then doing. Right. More than acupuncture. Yeah. And the very, the very, very early days, it was just acupuncture. And although the herbs really got in there pretty early also. Oh, man. Well, I'm grateful to guys like you because, again, I, I was able to walk right into having a profession. You know, when I decided I was going to change from one career to another, I could actually move into a career. It was clear to me that acupuncture was something that it was possible to make a living at, actually a good living. I went and interviewed a couple acupuncturists before I thought about going to acupuncture school because I had a nice middle-class life and I didn't want to not have one. And so I wanted to make sure that it was actually possible to make a living. And, and back in the mid-90s, there were some people that were making a nice living doing acupuncture. So, you know, thanks in, in great part to all the work that people like you and, you know, you early practitioners and pioneers who laid the groundwork. Now, man, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, yeah. I think that a lot recently. You know, and it's amazing how quickly it goes. I, I, you know, I'm wondering, again, we're, we're kind of in the way back machine. And, uh, but when you think back to those early years, as the profession was being built, when it was actually being built, did you have hopes or dreams or glimpses for how our medicine would grow into the culture and grow into our society? Well, I think we we all hoped that it would get more inclusive and more accepted because we knew how well it helped people. And it was just kind of really obvious that if it helped the people that we were dealing with, it could help a whole lot more people if it got more accepted. Uh, and so that was a lot of what we were all aiming for. And people had multiple different visions that frequently did not agree with each other about how to actually get from where we were to anywhere else. So as with all human beings, uh, people argued about all sorts of stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, various things happened. And uh, I think by the fact that the medicine is just so powerful and wonderful and does so much that regardless of any of that other stuff, it, it just kept growing. Uh, <laughs> you know, it kept working. You know, people kept be learning enough to be able to help enough other people that it, it kept spreading. And, uh, and, and it's moved into the, the stages that we're in now with the, the new challenges that everybody has now that it's actually semi-mainstream uh, of what that means and, and, uh, and how, to, how the prof profession moves forward from there. It's another whole series of challenging things to try to vision out to see how to move forward best in those directions. Yeah. You know, there's that old phrase about what got you to here isn't going to get you to there. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's very true. People generally tend to get very attached to their own realities and stories and what happens and don't really open up to the fact that everything's ever changing. I mean, that's part of our medicine also. You know, nothing stays the same. Everything, uh, we have to look at the, everything in, in the particular moment that we're in because it's not the same as the last moment. Uh, and, uh, you know, most human beings tend to get stratified. So the more we can just be open to whatever the next 
level of things that we need to be aiming towards is really what gets us to that next place in a, the best manner. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I agree with you 100%. And man, it's hard. It, it's really, I find it difficult, especially when things have worked well, when something's been successful, to at a certain point lay it aside because it's not going to help going forward. It was like the right tool at the right time, but the times are different. It's very, very hard to do that. It's very hard to do it early enough. We always get lots of signals that those things should be shifting and changing. And we're usually extremely resistant about hearing it. And if we hear it, to, to do something about it until it bonks us on the head hard enough. Yeah, I, I usually have to get drug along kicking and screaming. I'm usually very good about that. Very recently, I managed to miss and got pretty <laughs> drug along kicking and streaming myself. But uh, <laughs> uh, historically, I've been good. Uh, but once I got the big thunk, I like I, I got it instantly. And I said, okay, everything is different now. And, uh, and I completely reworked my reality. Can I ask what that was? Well, I went from seeming to be okay over about a one-month period of time, essentially going into moderate heart failure and uh, did what I needed to do, stopped doing everything, stopped working for a while, stopped doing anything. And fortunately, uh, well, here's another part of the medicine here. One can look at this from whatever perspective uh, various people have told me what they think. I may not repeat it, but uh, various of my colleagues uh, found out about what was happening with me. Uh, and I ended up getting one a treatment of one kind or another from somewhere between acupuncture to visceral manipulation to lymphatic massage uh, on a daily basis for 11 of 12 days. Uh, and it flipped me from moderate heart failure to normal, along with stopping of uh, reassessing my life uh, and deciding to going in the opposite direction of what most people do, that's because I'm 71, of pruning my acupuncture practice by a third. I said, okay, it's time. I like what I'm doing, but I can't do as much as I've been doing. So I just said, okay, it's different now. And it gave more space between treatments and that part feels good. So that's great. I'm glad to hear. I got the message. It, it took getting thunk pretty hard, but uh, yeah. A heart issue is a big thunk. Yeah. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, I've got these images in my mind, you know, it's so easy to 
get filled full of stereotypes and hopes and wishes and stuff. And, you know, there's that kind of archetypical old Chinese medicine practitioner who's been doing it forever and still does it. And, you know, in their nineties. And I mean, I had a guy like that, that I spent time with in Taiwan. Yep. Yep. Yeah, those, those guys were great guys and ladies. And I remember for the longest time thinking, oh yeah, that that's me. I'm going to just keep doing this. But I realized even just in my mid sixties that it's important to, and again, this comes from our medicine, like meet and match the moment with who you are and that informs how you are. It's about balance. It's about balance. Yeah, well, it, most balance comes about because something got off kilter. And so you know what non-balance looks like. Yeah. I found in my own practice, I used to work in a way where it's like, oh, I can squeeze a person in here. I can squeeze a person in there. I can, I leave a little slack, but I do it so that I can put more people in on kind of a last minute basis. And I found over the past few months that I don't want to do that anymore. I just, I have an aversion to doing that. I want to leave a little bit of extra space, not so I can fill it, but so that I can enjoy a little extra space. Yeah, spaciousness was the key word that came to me. And same thing. I mean, I, I, my vision has been to, you know, I, I love what I'm doing. I'd like to keep working till my body decides to stop. But I'd always said that I'll work less and less. And that's how you do it. I mean, you have to, you know, as we've been talking about, you have to flow with what is appropriate at that point in time and not stay with what was appropriate. And uh, if we do that, then we stay in that particular flow. We keep enjoying what we're doing. The energy is still strong. Our chi is still strong. Uh, and we can keep doing it. But, you know, if we push against that particular river, you know, it doesn't work. You can push a lot more when you're younger. Yeah, that's right. And being graceful with the the aging process is one of the challenges that, that in anybody who goes through that has. We all try to be younger than we really are. And <laughs> it doesn't actually ever work. Yeah, it doesn't actually work. So all y'all's listening in your 30s, I mean, make hay while the sun shines because, like, you can do it now and it's great. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah, maybe if you make enough hay, then it, it's a little easier to uh, back off a bit later. I don't know. I hate giving up capacity and I hate... Uh, it's not giving up capacity. It's shifting one's view of what is real. You know, the, the, you know, the, the, the capacity is there, but it just shifts into a more yin format and a less yang format. Uh, and it's more expansive and it's not pushing, 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 doing, doing, doing. It's the part where, where sages and wisdom comes out of us, but it doesn't come out in the same yang fashion that it was when we were younger. Thank you, Madeline Finkelstein. I really needed to hear that right about now. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we have real challenges um, as individuals aging and discovering how we are and who we are as we have the great privilege of doing this work. That's right. Just to shift it a bit here, in terms of looking at the profession, I mean, you, you've had your hand you know, on the wheels of it in so many ways. And there's a new generation that's coming up and, you know, it's, it's their oyster now. What do you see as some of the challenges of this time and in, in the immediate future for the profession? Interestingly enough, I've stepped back enough that I'm not actually looking at that. 
I think that that's really largely the job of the next generations. Uh, and so I'm just there giving my chi to support them and encouraging them and being there if they want any advice. But in terms of the specifics, it's a different world and I don't need to be there structuring it and trying to figure it out. You know, I've, I've done my bit of those things personally. Other people in my age, uh, I have colleagues who are, are really being the mentors for the next generation uh, very actively and I think it's great. But for me, you know, I've spent, you know, 25, 30 years of my life really actively out there in the national and state levels. Uh, and uh, that's just not, not where I'm at. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just supporting the chi of all, all of, of, of those who have come after me. Well, I don't use this term lightly, but I would say that those are wise words. Thank you. Yeah. And there's people who, like I said, there are, there are others of my, of my generation who are still imparting their wisdom. You know, that's their time to be doing that particular thing. And, you know, I have other teaching things that I am very, very active in. You know, some of my spiritual teaching is just, you know, really blooming. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and that part of my life has become more active. So, you know, different, different things come at different times. For sure. As humans, we go through these developmental phases. Well, Malvin, thank you so much for um, the time today and, and reflecting and looking back at our profession and uh, your unique walk through it. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you for deciding to do all of this and asking me to be part of it. It's, uh, it's actually been very, very nice to be able to recollect and share all this stuff. You know, again, appreciation in large part because, and it's probably the third time I've said it in, in this conversation today, I was fortunate to come in at a time when something was already established. And there's so much about how it got established. I had no idea at the time. Still a little bit clueless on, which, which is partly why I'm having these conversations. I think there's, you know, especially for those who are disgruntled with, you know, the way things are today. I mean, my God, if you're young and you're not disgruntled, you're probably not paying attention. I mean, there's that. But you know, a lot of times things came about and they become the way they are because of really good intentions that hardworking people spent a lot of time and effort on to, to create something. So it's really helpful to hear something about these very creative early days. And it was an amazing group of people who did a lot of those things, the people who started all the schools, who started all the organizations. You know, there was probably, I don't know, maybe... 30, 40 people, you know, who really did a whole lot of that. And then a variety of other people, you know, you get up to about another, you know, 40, 50 people over the next few years who, who really carried on with a lot of that stuff. But uh, uh, it, was, it was really a few real visionary people who managed to come together and, and agree enough somehow to get those, those underlying structures there. And, and then, then, then it's really a matter of, of you know, everybody else afterwards seeing what's the best way to, to move forward uh, and how, how those structures really need to keep working. Well, it seems it's a few visionary people that are always causing the uproar and making things happen. <laughs> yeah, that would be true. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, take good care of yourself and uh, keep working that yin. Yeah, thank you. That's a lot of what we all need to be doing more of. 
did not realize that when Malvin learned acupuncture and helped to create the infrastructure for the profession that we have today, there was a kind of ripeness for this medicine to enter the American mainstream. Many at the time who learned the medicine were motivated more by calling than pedigree. Diverse groups of people with different opinions, they came together and created the four commissions that would in turn lay the foundation and create the institutions that we so easily take for granted today. Sometimes the world is ready for something. And if you happen to be in that slipstream, there's a creative potential that seems to be more easy to manifest. A lot can get accomplished in a short amount of time. Beginnings, they hold that kind of potency. And I am grateful to people like Malvin, who took up the call to help create the infrastructure that has sustained me for the past 25 years. As to the future, I appreciate Malvin's perspective that that is in the hands of those who are now newly engaging the work. One thing for sure, there's always good work looking to get done. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.